good afternoon, everyone. This is Kilich Kanat, the research director of the uh, SETA DC. And uh, today we have a panel on the uh, upcoming NATO summit and Turkey-US relations. And what should we expect from the Biden-Erdogan summit uh, in, the, uh, in the NATO meeting? So we have two uh, panelists today. Uh, Luke Coffey, director of Douglas and Sarah Ellison Center for Foreign Policy in Heritage Foundation, and Muhittin Ataman, the foreign policy director of the uh, SETA Foundation. And I think I don't need to make a long introduction about the state of Turkish-American relations. We already have uh, enough for the last probably 10 years now. We have been reading and writing about the state of the relations and one crisis after another, uh, it become almost a crisis-driven relationship. However, uh, uh, in the uh, there are now high hopes about the uh, meeting at NATO. So uh, before we start the Turkish-American relationship, let's get some perspective about uh, the NATO summit and its main agenda. Luke, shall we start with you? Great, uh, Kilich, thank you so much for moderating and inviting me back here. And thanks, Sita, uh, for inviting me back uh, to speak. I, I look forward to when we can do these all in person again. Um, but in the meantime, this is fantastic, so thanks for that. Yeah, in terms of the, this NATO summit, it is particularly important. that uh, You hear this all the time before every NATO summit, that this is the most important summit since the last one. Um, but in many ways, this one actually is important for a number of reasons. Firstly, the, the biggest uh, military operation that has been uh, occupying the focus of the alliance over the past um, almost two decades uh, in Afghanistan is, is really coming to an end for NATO. Um, so this will be the first uh, summit where the main focus uh, or one of the top focuses will not be on um, what the strategy is in Afghanistan for, for NATO forces. Now, I think a lot of that uh, rhetoric and discussion will change to how do we continue to support the Afghan government after we all leave and, and, and that sort of thing. But uh, Afghanistan, the fact that, you know, there are very few NATO troops uh, left uh, on the ground in Afghanistan now, and this is the first summit since this has been the case, um, makes this summit important. Secondly, and this is an obvious one, um, this is the first NATO summit uh, since the pandemic. Um, NATO had done quite a bit, in, especially in the earlier days, delivering PPE to um, different countries in the, uh, in the North Atlantic area, helping out where possible. Um, I, I personally don't foresee uh, dealing with pandemics as becoming a core task for NATO. NATO is an intergovernmental security alliance. Uh, it doesn't have the policy competencies required to like deal with pandemics, but it certainly has a role to help during a pandemic. And we saw this. I suspect lessons will be learned. This will be discussed um, in case it's ever NATO is ever needed again. Um, another reason why this uh, summit is important is because this is the uh, summit that is taking place before NATO publishes its uh, next strategic concept. Uh, the strategic concept, uh, for those who may not be familiar with this term, is the policy document that is meant to guide the alliance and the leaders of the alliance on the big geostrategic issues. The last strategic concept was published at the Lisbon summit in 2010. Now think what in the world has changed since 2010. Yeah, Arab Spring, Syria, Libya, um, the pandemic, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and occupation of Crimea, um, just to name a few things. I mean, there are, there are many, many, many more. Uh, so it's important that NATO uses this uh, time to develop the strategic concept to get the alliance focused on future challenges and future threats. And then, of course, finally, the reason why this summit is notable is because this is um, the first summit for President Biden. Uh, to join. And, you know, there's been a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, ups and downs in the transatlantic relationship over time. Uh, with President Trump, the rhetoric was often way off, but many times the policies were, were good. They were right there where we needed them to be. Um, with President Biden so far, and we're in very early days, so it's difficult to see how this will play out, but you often get 
the right amount of rhetoric, uh, but then you, the right rhetoric, but in the relationship, but then you have problems with the policies coming out. Nord Stream 2 is a good example. Um, it was just uh, announced this week that the White House re budget request for the European Deterrence Initiative is actually 20% lower than what it was uh, last year. So that's not good. But on the positive side, the Biden administration is at least for now frozen for their US troop withdrawals from Germany. So again, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's not a very clear cut. In terms, I'll end here for this question, Kilich, but in terms of the agenda items, you know, obviously uh, Russia is always in the, lurking in the background and will be a, a top issue. Then you'll have different groups inside NATO pushing for certain things. You'll have Central and Eastern Europe pushing for deterrence and especially a focus on the Black Sea. Uh, you'll have the Biden administration and a few others probably in Western Europe pushing for a climate change agenda, which again, NATO lacks the policy competencies to deal with the challenges of climate change, but this will still be top of the list. And then you'll have a lot of people wanting to, to discuss China. And my personal view is that until China becomes a military threat uh, in the North Atlantic area, north of the Tropic of Cancer, which is what NATO's uh, founding document describes as NATO's area responsibility. So China becomes a military threat. The, the alliance itself is very limited in what it can do to counter China, but the member states are responsible for doing this and they should work together. And perhaps NATO is a way where they can coordinate what the different member states are doing with China. So I'll end there. Thanks, Kilich. Thank you, Luke. Uh Professor Ataman, your opinion about uh, NATO summit, the agenda, and what should we expect from the summit? Well, uh, I think uh, as just uh, Luke has just mentioned, uh, it is uh, uh, a significant meeting since it's the first one after the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and uh, since then, since last uh, summit, uh, there has been too many things going on uh, in uh, the Eastern uh, European front, uh, and there are still ongoing tensions and uh, increasing tensions between Turkey and especially some NATO members, uh, uh, the United States in particular. So I, uh, I hope that this, uh, this is one of, the, uh, one of my expectations regarding the meeting, uh, the, the, the summit meeting, that it will uh, create an opportunity to repair uh, 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 the, the rupture uh, among the NATO member states, especially between uh, Turkey and the United States. Since, uh, you know, when it comes to Russia, we know that Turkey is the second most important country, uh, re relevant country uh, only after the United States. Uh, so, uh, I hope that uh, uh, it will contribute uh, to the consolidation of the NATO alliance. Uh, you know, many people in Washington and Brussels uh, nowadays uh, discuss the normalization uh, between uh, Turkey and uh, uh, other NATO members. So uh, probably uh, the interdependence, the increasing interdependence uh, among the NATO members uh, will uh, force the, all sides uh, to think about this and to, uh, to continue with this one. Uh, so uh, you know, and another significant point is, I think uh, the Eastern Mediterranean issue may be discussed uh, because uh, this is what, uh, how I see it, uh, the Russian Federation began to contain uh, the Western Europeans, uh, you know, uh, from the Eastern Mediterranean. So uh, it, Russia is a new actor. So it, in one sense, it began to open a second front uh, in its relation uh, with the European countries. Uh, so I, I personally expect that uh, besides all the issues uh, just mentioned by Luke, uh, the, 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 the question of the Eastern Mediterranean uh, and the positions of the regional countries will be discussed uh, during the meeting. Yeah, this is the glitch. 
Thank you, uh, Professor Ataman. And uh, look, uh, going back to you now, uh, before we start discussing on Turkish-American relations, for those who are following us on uh, YouTube, Instagram, or uh, Twitter, if you write your questions on the comment boxes uh, or as a reply, uh, my assistants will uh, gather that questions and give it to me. And if you are following us through Zoom, uh, you can write your questions on chat box or Q&A box so that uh, we can uh, ask to our panelists. So uh, Turkish-American relations now, Luke. And uh, this is one of the, uh, as far as I know, uh, President Biden will have only three, I think, meetings, uh, bilateral meetings uh, in Brussels. Of course, he will first travel to London for G7. And after London, he will be in a NATO summit in Brussels on the 14th of June. And then the 16th, a very important meeting, uh, it will be Putin and Biden meeting. So one of those important meetings, bilateral meetings that he has, he's going to have during this uh, series of summits is the meeting between uh, President Biden and President Erdogan. And this is a, 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 because of Corona, because of the state of the relations, a delayed meeting and there are uh, expectations about the meeting. And I have been following uh, the summits between the presidents of two countries for the probably uh, last 10 years. And each and every summit before that, we usually say, well, this is the most important because the state of the relations are in such a critical state. This is probably the most important one. And uh, given the uh, uncertainties, a lot of uncertainties, a lot of crisis and tensions in relations, this will be probably one of the most important summits. And what would you expect from the summit between President Erdogan and President Biden? Thanks. Um, firstly, I think it's important that we manage expectations on this on this meeting. Um, I almost think calling it a summit uh, is um, making it seem bigger than what it really is and might uh, unnecessarily inflate expectations on um, what people hope will come out of it. For me, um, for this meeting to be successful, I think that we should we should see um, some of the rhetoric uh, used by both sides cool down a little bit. I think we should focus. We should try to compartmentalize some of the more contentious issues, such as U.S. support to the YPG PKK terror group in Syria, um, the S-400 uh, issue with um, uh, Turkey buying the S-400 from Russia, um, the F-35 program um, and all the issues related to that, uh, Gulan. I mean, there's a whole laundry list of like these big issues, right? But because the US-Turkish relationship has been, you know, very deep and long for so many years, we've almost now, um, all figured out a way, almost subconsciously figured out a way, at least on the, the technical level, to keep the relationship going while almost, it's almost like we're living in two different worlds. We have the world of like S-400 and YPG, and then we have the world of intelligence cooperation, military cooperation, NATO, uh, Afghanistan, that sort of thing. So I would like us to focus on building confidence, restoring some of the confidence in the, in, in the relationship, focusing on the issues where we have commonality, Ukraine, for example, um, Afghanistan. Uh, you know, it is my understanding, and it, it has been reported that um, uh, the U.S. went around NATO and asked, will any member step up to the plate and help provide security for Kabul International Airport after the withdrawal? And every NATO member said no, Turkey said maybe, and now it's my understanding that Turkey has said yes. Uh, you know, th this sort of um, interaction between the US and Turkey would not take place if relations behind the scenes were really as bad as they appear publicly. Um, so Afghanistan is another issue where there's commonality where we can find support. Um, NATO, uh, NATO issues in general, but specifically NATO enlargement, the United States and Turkey are some of the two strongest uh, alliance members advocating for NATO enlargement, especially as it pertains to Georgia. Or the strategic concept that I mentioned, it'd be great to see the US and Turkey working together inside the alliance to shape the strategic concept, because I think 
when it comes to the North Atlantic area, uh, the US and Turkey have a similar view of the, the threats and challenges. And then of course, uh, there's energy issues. Um, and this hasn't been reported as much, but US LNG uh, uh, imports into Turkey have skyrocketed. Um, and meanwhile, there's been reductions in uh, Russian and Iranian LNG or uh, Russian and Iranian natural gas. Uh, so this is an area of further cooperation. So in sum, I would like to see confidence building. I don't, want to, I don't want them to try to solve all the big problems at once. I want to see confidence building and I want to see um, a restored, uh, uh, calm uh, rhetoric between the two leaders. Professor Atama, your expectations about the meeting and given the fact that yesterday uh, National Security Advisor uh, Jake Sullivan uh, made a, a respond the question about the summit and mentioned Eastern Mediterranean, which you mentioned right now about the, one of the agendas of the NATO meeting, Syria, Iran, as well as the role that Turkey will play in Afghanistan as uh, one of the uh, part of the expensive agenda of the summit. So what would you expect from the summit? And I see that there are the quest, uh, there are questions started to pour about more specific issues, but I want you to give me a, your general idea about what should we expect from the summit or okay. meeting if we accept Luke's okay. conceptualization. Okay. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Kılıç. Uh, I think the June summit uh, can be a venue for the two presidents uh, to agree on a potential path to rescue relations, bilateral relations from the turbulence of the last decade. Uh, you know, uh, the technical teams, probably they have been working on different proposals. Uh, we don't know, it remains to be seen how the US president will engage in leader to leader diplomacy in his face to face meeting with Erdogan, you know, uh, whom he has known for a long time. Uh, so, uh, the two presidents' upcoming meeting, uh, which is no less significant than uh, President Erdogan's uh, May 2013 meeting with the former U.S. President uh, Barack Obama, uh, could go two ways uh, to me. Uh, firstly, Biden could make an effort to repair his country's relations with Turkey, despite all the problems, uh, problem areas, and make a positive start. Uh, you know, there is such an expectation. Uh, the, the second option involves a diplomatic meeting where both sides recite their respective talking points uh, on uh, areas of disagreement and inform their counterparts about their concerns. So it will, uh, it, uh, the, the second option will be just sharing uh, their uh, approaches, their perceptions regarding certain uh, global and regional uh, uh, issues. Both leaders are certainly experienced enough to, to make that uh, their words. So if the meeting uh, goes that way, the Turkish people will conclude that the Biden administration has not reversed its negative approach toward Turkey that uh, was manifested on the campaign trail. So uh, as just uh, Luke uh, has mentioned, I think one of the most important factors is, uh, uh, you know, just to, uh, to change uh, the current uh, negative sense, that is to uh, build somehow uh, some uh, trust, uh, that is to eradicate the mistrust between the two sides. So uh, since the, the, the two countries uh, attach great importance to the future of NATO, uh, to the consolidation of the alliance. Uh, so uh, I hope uh, the discussion over NATO itself will make a contribution uh, th that is, it increases the chance for a positive start. Uh, uh, so uh, my view is that the atmosphere in Erdogan's upcoming meeting with Biden will set the tone uh, for Turkey's relations, not only with the United States, but also uh, with the EU member states uh, for the next uh, several years. Thank you, uh, Professor Rataman. And uh, you mentioned the personal chemistry between leaders and how it will impact the 
uh, relations actually yesterday uh, one of the things that Jake Sullivan said actually uh, in quote President Biden knows Erdogan very well the two men have spent have spent a good amount of time together and they are both I think looking forward to the opportunity to really have a business-like opportunity to review the full breadth of the relationship we don't know what this business-like uh, opportunity means but it, it may mean uh, transactionalism, uh, transactional partnership, or it may be something different. And as you mentioned, the uh, state of the relations between two leaders have always been important in Turkish-US uh, relations, starting from probably 1980s when Özal had very good relations with uh, George H. Bush. And following that, uh, even in the first two, three years of Obama administration, where Obama and Erdogan had a very good relationship. And of course, the, uh, after the Trump's presidency, Trump-Erdogan relationship. And uh, I start to have some question about more specific issues. And I know that some of the questions overlap. So let me start, Luke, with you about S-400s. And there are a bunch of questions on S-400s coming from social media and from our Zoom uh, audience. And one of the question is, uh, I think the gist of all of these questions is, can this crisis be resolved? And if you were uh, in the shoes of one of the advisors right now, what would you, what would your recommendation be to resolve this crisis? Well, thanks knowing for, the history of it. Thanks for giving me the easy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, um, yes, I, I do think uh, this could be resolved, but it's going to take some uh, creativity and some flexibility by all sides. I mean, the, the first thing about this debate, I wish we both sides would take a step back and develop a better understanding on what concerns the the other. So Americans need to understand why Turkey um, ended up with the S-400 and why they see they have certain security needs that the U.S. Um, was, seemed, seemed unwilling to help them address. Meanwhile, Turkey, Turks, Turkish officials need to do um, a, a good job at understanding how this looks from a U.S. point of view. You know, uh, a NATO country operating such an advanced Russian air defense system. I think both sides just need to understand each other's positions a little better. Uh, can this issue be resolved? Probably over time is going to be resolved at this upcoming meeting. Most certainly not. Uh, a proposal that I've thrown out a few times and, you know, people have said that uh, I'm crazy and, and whatnot, but I'll still share it again, is that um, uh, Turkey perhaps uh, sends these S-400s to uh, Azerbaijan, uh, preferably Nakhchivan, for a training exercise, and then they sort of remain there um, over time. And meanwhile, the U.S. Uh, lifts these restrictions or these concerns about Patriot to Turkey, delivers Patriot to Turkey, gets Turkey back in the F-35 program. So Turkey could uh, keep the S-400 under its control, operated by Turks, Turkish soldiers in neighboring and brotherly Azerbaijan in Nakhchivan. So there's still that land border there. Um, it, this would not make Russia very happy, but as an American, this is an added bonus, but this would be a problem that Turkey would have to deal with. It wouldn't make Iran very happy. And again, I, I, I view that as a bonus. Um, but uh, if you want Turkey um, back in the F-35 program, if you want Turkey using uh, patriots, then, uh, or if you want the relationship to sort of be restored, then we're going to have to offer some sort of off-ramp uh, for the Turkish government here. So that is um, that is my uh, proposal, and and I'm open to suggestions or tweaks to that. Um, I'm not saying it's the best idea in the world, but frankly, um, I'm not hearing any other good ideas either. So uh, that's that's my take on it. Okay, uh, Rich, I see your hand after uh, S400. Uh, you will be uh, on. 
Uh, Luke, uh, there's a follow-up question for this. Uh, before uh, Professor Ataman, I want to ask you that. Uh, Mark Kimet is asking, is the S-400 a US-Turkey problem or a F-35 consortium slash Turkey problem? As the issue is that it's a major threat to the F-35. It's, it's both. Um, it's a US-Turkey problem in the sense that rightly or wrongly, actually, wrongly um the the f-35 is viewed as a u.s platform but it's not it's a it's a jointly developed multinational platform but because there's this perception that the f-35 is a u.s platform uh and because there are there's already so much tension in the u.s turkey relationship uh the s-400 issue gets uploaded as onto the u.s turkish bilateral plat stage um, and and uh, it's not necessarily accurate, but that is the reality, I would say. But it's also a F-35 consortium slash Turkey problem uh, because, you know, Turkey was uh, the, uh, a major contributor to the F-35. Um, it had contributed million, hundreds of millions of dollars in its development. Um, it was about ready to receive ownership of a few F-35s when all this happened. And Turkey is responsible for the, the supply chain for account of the F-35. And this is proving to be very difficult to um, overcome and solve this issue of the supply chain. Uh, so, of course, the technical aspects of, of why the S-400 being in the same country, in the same area as uh, F-35, um, remains and it continues to be a problem, that impacts everyone using the F-35. Uh, so uh, I, I don't see uh, this being resolved with Turkey operating S-400 inside Turkey and having the F-35. I don't think it'll be resolved this way. Uh, it's definitely a problem for all of the countries that are involved in the F-35 program. But interestingly, you have, you know, Secretary General Stoltenberg, who has been over the years performing uh, like diplomatic gymnastics to, to try to... Um, uh, convince everyone that, well, you know, it's, it's okay without saying it's okay and it's not going to be a problem and, and everything. And I guess as Secretary General of NATO, that's his uh, responsibility and he's done a very good job at that. But he's also the Secretary General of, of, of um, you know, NATO, of course, has a lot of countries involved in the F-35 consortium. And there's a lot of genuine concerns by the F-35 um, users. Uh, so, yeah, it's both a U.S.-Turkey problem and an F-35 consortium in Turkey problem. So if it is, uh, a part of it is about F-35 and Turkey, do you expect countries like India to get a waiver for the CATSA sanctions for purchasing S-400s or not? Luke, your mic is up. Sorry, I've only been doing this for about 16 months now. <laughs> so I should be able to unmute. Um, now I, I don't know if um, India getting F-35 is uh, seriously on the cards. Um, and also there's a lot of, so I, I think that's a hypothetical that I'm not willing to engage on. But I do know that, um, and I'm not a South Asian expert either, but I do know that with the Costa sanctions in India, um, among policymakers in Washington, rightly or wrongly, there is a different attitude that can be taken. I think mainly because, um, you know, India is not in the same security alliance like NATO that Turkey is in with the United States. Or India has had a very long history of kind of spreading out where it gets its defense uh, imports from. Um, you know, so the, the, the situation, uh, look, if any country operating the S-400, I, I find alarming, just like that's my natural instinct. Uh, but I also understand the world's not black and white and it's, you know, very often these issues are very complex. And, and uh, so I, I'm very hesitant to try to apply the situation with India to the situation with the US and Turkey. Professor Ataman, uh, your turn about two questions. Number one is uh, about S-400. What is the Ankara's perspective and what would be your uh, solution for this problem, your proposal to solution? And what do you think about uh, Luke's idea about sending it to Azerbaijan? How does it look? Does it look a feasible solution for Turkey? Uh, well, Kılıç, uh, first of all, let me uh, 
make a categorization. You know, we have been discussing this S-400 issue for a long time. Whether it was uh, or it is a cause of uh, the rising tension between the United States and Turkey, or is it uh, one of the results of the rising tension between the United States and Turkey? And there is, I think, uh, uh, different, uh, different uh, uh, opinion uh, on this one. For, for the American side, it's the cause, but for the Turkish side, uh, it's the result of the rising tension between the two sides. For this, we have to focus on the confidence building measures between the two sides. Uh, the, the, the second categorization is, I don't know whether the discussion should focus on the technical dimension of this uh, topic of this subject or the political dimension. I think for the, for the American side, the issue is much more political than technical. You know, uh, uh, Secretary, Secretary General uh, Stoltenberg, for instance, several times uh, he explained that uh, it will not create a big problem uh, for the NATO alliance, uh, that is uh, Turkish uh, excess of S-400 will not create a big problem, a big technical problem. I think uh, uh, for the United States and for many other NATO members, the main problem is the political one. You know, many uh, countries, they consider this uh, transaction uh, as a kind of uh, uh, shift of active uh, in Turkey's foreign policy orientation. Uh, for sure, it will create some kind of diversification for the uh, Turkish weapons system, that's true. But uh, we have to clarify these two dimensions, whether the technical uh, dimension or the political dimension uh, dominates. Uh, at this point, I think it will be very difficult to ask Turkey to ab uh, abandon this process. And uh, the United States administration is quite quick, you know, when it adopted sanctions on Turkey over uh, its purchase of S-400 uh, missiles, defense uh, uh, missiles. So uh, the Turkish side expects the, the goodwill from the United States administration that is to solve this problem through dialogue and uh, negotiations. But uh, when we look at the, the current process, we see that somehow uh, the, the American side tried to, to force Turkey at least uh, to abandon this or uh, to find a way not to activate this S-400 system. Uh, regarding the looks uh, expectation, I think it will, not, it will not be the case. That is to send this to Azerbaijan. Uh, first of all, Azerbaijan does not want to remain in between, you know, from the beginning, unlike Armenia and many other ex-Soviet uh, republics, Azerbaijan is quite careful not uh, to take one uh, uh, or, or the other side uh, in uh, the rivalry between the West and the Russian Federation. So, uh, so far, it has successfully uh, adopted and implemented uh, this uh, uh, neutral uh, position. So uh, probably sending S-400 may uh, question uh, this position. So uh, uh, the Azerbaijani government uh, probably uh, may not accept this uh, just from the Azerbaijani part. From the Turkish side, for the Turkish side, uh, you know, it has uh, a domestic dimension as well. You know, it will be quite difficult to persuade uh, the Turkish public at this point, you know, uh, after spending billions of uh, dollars uh, and uh, there is no guarantee that the United States will provide as for uh, sorry uh, Patriot missiles or some other alternative. So uh, the main problem here is uh, there is no trust, no confidence between the two sides. Considering this uh, negative perception of Turkey in the United States, it will be quite difficult for me uh, to solve this problem at this stage. So the two sides have to postpone this. Uh, as a last point, Turkey, I think, in its bilateral relations with the United States, attach greater importance to the, to the American support for YPG and for the FETA uh, uh, terrorist uh, network. So 
uh, unless the United States change its position uh, in this uh, regarding these two non-state actors, probably it will be very difficult for the Turkish side to be persuaded uh, by the uh, United States officials. Okay, thank you. And uh, as far as I understand, uh, go ahead, Luke. I just qu quickly add um, uh, two points to clarify my my suggestion um, about Nakhchivan. The reason why I did pick Nakhchivan is because I thought it would at least be within the spirit of, of the 1921 Treaty of Cars. So it would be that much more palatable and acceptable to all the parties involved. Uh, and, uh, and I want to reiterate that this proposal would definitely not work unless the U.S. gave a ironclad guarantee that it would offer Patriot. Um, th that would that would be in the central part uh, of this proposal. But I do um, uh, completely agree with the professor on, on on all of the concerns and the shortcomings of, of the idea and the proposal. Um, I'm just trying to, you know, uh, only dead fish go with the flow. Uh, so <laughs> I'm trying to like think creatively about some of these challenges that have been around for a few years now so we can get the ball moving and get us all heading in the right direction. As far as I understand from uh, what you mentioned, uh, we are, you are not optimistic about the resolution of this problem, but hoping that it can uh, be put in freezer at least for a while and waited to be resolved in a uh, better situation, especially when the trust is built between two countries so that they can start talking about these kind of uh, more critical issues. Uh, Rich has a question, Dr. Ataman, to you. I, and I have a lot of questions now in front of me, so I will go with the questions instead of asking my, my own question. Uh, his question is, has Ankara concluded the Biden administration is more or less anti-Turkey or still in wait and see mode? Dr. Atom. Uh, well, uh, I think uh, considering uh, the last uh, statements made by uh, uh, President Biden, uh, the, the Turkish public opinion and the Turkish government uh, consider uh, the Biden administration no less anti-Turkey than the Trump administration. You know, the, the problem regarding the Trump administration, you know, uh, he was making unexpected moves. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, but when it comes to, when it comes to uh, Donald Trump administration, you know, uh, uh, his statement regarding the, uh, the Armenian issue uh, and uh, defining this, uh, as a, gen, uh, as a genocide, uh, you know, cre created uh, uh, a first reaction uh, on, on the Turkish uh, on the Turkish side. You know, he, he's, uh, when he referred to the uh, sorry 1915 event as a genocide, uh, you know, uh, he made this statement only after his first phone call with uh, President Erdogan. Before, so, before the phone call. Uh, 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 Oh, after the phone call, yeah, go ahead. No, no, after, mm -hmm. after, after his first phone call, you know, uh, he called Mr. Uh, President Erdogan, then one day later, one or two days later, uh, he, he referred the event as a genocide. So uh, uh, this was uh, the first uh, negative, the most important uh, uh, negative statement made by uh, Biden you know, and he became the first American president to do so. You know, we know that uh, it has been going on for decades. Uh, and the second significant uh, negative perception regarding the Biden administration uh, emerged after the Israeli attacks on uh, Al-Aqsa Al Mosque and uh, on, uh, on the Gaza uh, uh, Strip. You know, uh, the unconditional support of the Biden administration uh, increased further uh, anti-Americanism in Turkey. Because, uh, you know, the, the, the world media, including the American media, showed how the, United, uh, how the Israeli state, you know, asymmetrically, you know, uh, uh, how it targeted and killed children, innocent people, civilians, etc. And uh, it attacked even 
uh, the third most sacred holy site for the Muslims that uh, I'm talking about the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So uh, we know that uh, similar reactions uh, probably rose worldwide, uh, not only uh, from the Muslims, but from the non-Muslims. Uh, we, we know that many Christians, many uh, Western Europeans also reacted to this, but the, uh, the, the Biden administration did not take one step back regarding this issue. And until uh, the end, they uh, provided uh, the unconditional support. So these two developments, I think, uh, created uh, a further negative uh, perception regarding the Biden administration in Turkey. So, uh, look, go, uh, now going back to you, after S-400, the public perception is really important. And uh, Professor Ataman mentioned the, uh, the public perception of Biden administration in Turkey. There's a question. Uh, Robert Friedman asked, how much will the summit be hurt by Erdogan's claims that Biden has blood on his hand because of aid to Israel during the recent Hamas-Israel war? So going to the public dimension of it in Washington. Yeah, look, I, I don't think this is going to, um, unless Biden takes this personally, I, this issue has already moved on in Washington. I mean, very few people, this wasn't even really reported in the US media as you know, um, unless you really focus on, on these issues, you, of course you heard about it. Um, you know, President Erdogan and President Biden um, know each other, I would say quite well. Um, President Biden has been around the block for 50 years dealing with foreign policy issues. Uh, as you know, as vice president, this man, visited President Erdogan while he was convalescing in his house, was, uh, you know, in 2011, I think it was, and, and had a meeting with him while I think President Erdogan was probably either feeling very unwell or perhaps even laying in bed. Um, so th these two know each other. That's the point I'm trying to make. And uh, I don't, the, 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 those unfortunate comments by President Erdogan, um, I don't think are going to have a material impact on the relationship uh, simply because, you know, I'll be honest, at this point, the sort of rhetoric is, is uh, expected and we, we hear it often, you know, whether it's like the Ottoman slap or, you know, Biden has blood on his hands. And so most, I think, U.S. policymakers are kind of like, oh, Erdogan will be Erdogan when it comes to this sort of rhetoric. Um, and in terms of, so I, I think that these two leaders, when they meet in person, will, I think they'll, they'll have a good meeting. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think they're going to become best friends, uh, but I think they're already well acquainted. And I think that matters and that helps. Um, in terms of the public, uh, uh, on, the, on Capitol Hill, there's a problem, you know, with Congress, there's this knee-jerk reaction that everything, you know, Turkey does must be bad or everything that's happening in the, in the region that is going on, Turkey's behind it. Um, and a lot of this is driven by uh, diaspora groups in the United States that have the ear of many members in Congress. Um, but, you know, your average, uh, I would say even your average policymaker and certainly your average person in the U.S. doesn't think very much at all about the U.S.-Turkish bilateral relationship. And let's also be honest, it's not as if America has always had like this really positive image among like the average person in Turkey either. I mean, throughout the throughout this uh, recent history, going back to 1949, um, you know, there's always been a slight anti-American sentiment in some uh, corners of society in Turkey. So uh, this is just uh, the, the, the reality. And I think that as long as the, our leaders, uh, the leaders in Turkey and the leaders in the United States, um, uh, recognize the importance of each other in this relationship, then I think everything will be okay. So I'm not so much worried about what, you know, what, what's thought on, on like Joe Public on the streets of America think about Turkey, or I'm not really concerned about what um, anyone on the streets in Turkey think about America. I, I'm concerned by what the leaders of these two countries and the, the establishment uh, in both countries think about each other. Thank you, Luke. And now going back to uh, another uh, controversial issue between two countries, 
U.S. assistance to YPG, uh, a branch of KKK in uh, northern Syria. And uh, Professor Ataman, uh, what would you advise the U.S. side on this? And what would be the solution of this uh, crisis? Because this is probably one of the most significant issues we are talking about, the anti-Americanism in Turkey, probably the most significant source of anti-Americanism in recent years or negative attitude towards the United States has been the US assistance for YPG. And the fact that this uh, assistance came at the point when PKK, uh, the uh, terrorist attacks of the PKK was rising in Turkey, generated a significant anger and frustration among the Turkish public. And for those uh, who have been following, this is not the, uh, this is not a new issue actually when uh, after the uh, first Gulf War, this issue started. And uh, after the Iraq War, US invasion of Iraq, uh, the lack of US uh, military interventions to PKK camps in Iraq also generated this. So it has a long history. And now it's radiated towards Syria and it become, with the direct military assistance of the United States to YPG, it become a more significant and critical issue. What would you expect from the meeting and what would you propose to resolve this? Uh, to me, uh, Kulich, uh, I think uh, the two pro uh, the two crises, the two issues are the most important when it comes to the Turkish-American relations. The first one, as uh, you have mentioned, these are the preconditions for the resolution of other crises. Mm -hmm. The first one is the American support for YPG and PKK. You know, uh, we do not make any different, uh, different uh, we do not differentiate, uh, you know, uh, these two organizations. We know that it is, it is the, the Syrian branch of PKK. And even the Americans, they know that every, uh, you know, observers uh, uh, of the region, they know well that it is the, uh, the Syrian branch of PKK. So the first precondition is this one. The second one is uh, the, the, the American direct or indirect support for federal members and hosting them in the United States, uh, pr providing financial support for them. Okay, so these two problems are considered as two main domestic threats. So for Turkey, these are domestic threats. And the United States, uh, through supporting these two organizations, it directly intervenes. This is the Turkish perception. Uh, you know, many bureaucrats, uh, officials, and the majority of the Turkish public thinks uh, in this way, and it becomes a direct in or indirect intervention of the United States uh, to the Turkish domestic politics. Okay, so these these two are preconditions. When it comes to the United States' role in northeastern part of Syria, you know, we have a, a saying in Turkish. Gölge etme, başka ihsan istemem. That is, uh, uh, please do not made, uh, make shadow uh, above me, so I do not want any other blessing, uh, any support uh, from you. So I, it's not a good, a, a good translation. Maybe you may have a better translation, Kılıç, uh, uh, for this thing. So the, the, the Turkish side at this point does not ask the U.S to contribute to its struggle uh, against PKK, but not to prevent, not to create obstacles in its struggle, okay? That's why, so the United States has been playing a negative role. Uh, so it, uh, the United States administration does not allow Turkey to struggle against terrorism, okay? So this is the, the perception in Turkey, both, uh, 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 in, uh, on, uh, from the bureaucratic side and from the popular side. So uh, Turkey for now has its own resources, has its own capacity and capability to struggle against uh, Daesh or uh, PKK or YPG as it has been doing uh, in, uh, in Northern Iraq, by the way. But the United States reaction to this, uh, for instance, the killing of high ranking uh, PKK uh, leaders is quite negative. You know, uh, just last week, I think the United States official claimed that Turkey has been violating international law. So sometimes the U.S. officials remember international uh, norms and rules 
uh, when it comes to Turkey, okay? But when it comes to the, for instance, their role in, in Syria, nobody talk about uh, their support for uh, PKK, for instance. You know, uh, so uh, to make it short, uh, Turkey expects the United States to just abandon, to stop its support for YPG. So if, as it has been asking for, for a long time, uh, you know, the American side has been exaggerating the role YPG has played in its struggle against Daesh. There is an exaggeration. You know, it, they just um, uh, uh, exaggerate this to provide a reasoning for their support for YPG. But the Turkish side, the Turkish state, the Turkish officials expect the, the end of this support. So for now, this is the first and the most important expectation from the Turkish side. Luke, uh, your turn. And we have been talking this issue. And do you think U.S. ever had a, a exit strategy about its cooperation with YPG, or do you think uh, Biden administration is going to have one soon? No. <laughs> Next question. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, Look, as an American citizen, as an American taxpayer, I would actually like to know what the hell we are doing in Syria right now. I mean, the, of all the conflicts that the U.S. has been or is involved in, for some reason, policymakers seem to think it's okay to give the public very little information on what U.S. troops are in Syria, what exactly they are doing. And this, is, this happened just a few years ago. I mean, before we got information, you know, during the fight against Daesh, but since then, we hear vague statements about um, supporting our, white, our SDF partners or uh, securing the oil fields or you know, this and that. And, you know, like right now, I cannot honestly tell you precisely how many U.S. troops are in northern Syria. I mean, I'm, I work as the director of foreign policy in a, in a major U.S. think tank. Um, I could give you a good guess from, from what I hear, uh, but... So I think that a good starting point from a U.S. point of view is the government being more transparent as to what we are doing and, and what the strategy and what the plan is. I mean, we're going to stay in northern Syria forever. Um, anyway, so th that's kind of like my, my uh, starting point. Um, you know, Kilich, you know my views on this. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, even before this was even on the radar for a lot of people, I was against the idea of arming the YPG. And I always said then, and I'll say it now, uh, I don't think arming a, a, a neo-Marxist terrorist organization to fight another terrorist organization is a good strategy for the United States. And it was bound to end in tears. Um, especially when it was at the expense of such an important ally and partner, uh, Turkey. Um, you know, I, when I speak to some of my British friends, the example I give is imagine if the U.S. decided to arm um, a, a wing of the IRA to fight another terrorist organization. I mean, that would be completely unacceptable. Um, but yet, for some reason, it's acceptable in Syria. The reason why I'm not optimistic is because many of these decisions were taken while President Biden was Vice President Biden, and he made some of the more outrageous promises uh, in the earlier days about, you know, no YPG um, or the YPG would stay east of the Euphrates River. Or remember this one, you know, when all the fighting ends, we're going to collect all the weapons up. I mean, <laughs> that's so ludicrous to think that that's even remotely possible. Um, and so I'm not optimistic that this administration is going to handle the situation uh, differently or, or any better. Um, this has come at a cost of uh, an important bilateral relationship that the U.S. has with Turkey. And uh, so I, I honestly cannot give you, um, you know, a, a more detailed answer on what the U.S. strategy should be to disengage from this because there's very little information public about this. Um, so th that is kind of my take on this uh, very important matter. But as a general rule, um, from the very beginning, I was always against the idea of the United States supporting and arming the uh, YPG PKK. Okay. So uh, we are not optimistic as far as you are at least 
uh, not optimistic to resolve this issue either. So uh, we have less than uh, five minutes actually and a list of questions. Uh, the, uh, I will ask these questions and want uh, shorter answers. Uh, one of the questions, uh, Professor Ataman, uh, will the two leaders discuss Libya considering there aren't many or major differences between the two countries? Uh, sorry, sorry, I, I, I missed, I missed the question, Khalid. Sorry, uh, will the two leaders discuss Libya, considering there aren't many or major differences between the two countries? I think Lib the Libyan crisis is one of the potential cooperative issues between the two sides, since Turkey has been supporting the uh, UN-recognized uh, government there, and it, it has been supporting. It has been. Uh, you know, uh, having a proxy war with the with with the Russians. You know, we we know that the Russian side, together with some of the American allies, unfortunately, I'm talking here uh, uh, about Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. How they have been supporting General Haftar, who has been strongly supported by the Russian side. So, uh, it, it, for now, it seems that it's not one of the main issues between the two sides. They can talk about this. But it's not a major issue between the two sides. Okay, uh, Luke, uh, a question to you from uh, Nicholas Kass. U.S. media do not differentiate between PKK and the Kurds. What can Turkey do to demonstrate that uh, that doesn't share that view, uh, that it can accommodate legitimate Kurdish interests and separate them from PKK? Would that help? Would that be helpful, uh, Biden administration, to develop an exit strategy? Yeah. Again, um, uh, well, the, the question is absolutely right, and the, the U.S. media or even U.S. policymakers don't differentiate between the different groups of Kurds, mm -hmm. and that is why we are where we are today in this mess, in my opinion. Um, and sadly, I don't think there's much that Turkey can do at this point. Um, to, to help or, or to change this in the United States. I think it's uh, the responsibility of US policymakers and Congress, <clears throat> excuse me, members of Congress and their staffs to educate themselves, to learn about the different groups, to see that you know, it's not just you know, one monolithic organization operating across four different countries in the Middle East. This is a very diverse um, ethnic group with a lot of competing interests and, and different history and, and, and everything. So um, the sooner we realize this, the better, but I'm not optimistic that that's gonna happen anytime soon. Uh, last question, uh, Professor Ataman, to you, it is a follow-up to Robert Friedman's question, actually. Uh, does the US statement uh, co condemning Erdogan for anti-Semitism affect the outlook of the meeting? Oh, come on. Uh, I think this is a joke made by the U.S. officials. <laughs> we all know that anti-Semitism is a Western concept. It's emerged in the West. Overall, historically, there is no anti-Semitism in Turkey. Just ask these questions to the Jewish people living in Turkey who received them more than 500 years ago when they were killed by the Europeans in Andalusia, okay? So there is no anti-Semitism. Overall, there is no anti-Semitism in Turkey. And probably most Western officials, including the Americans, they, uh, do, they do not make any difference between uh, the critics against the Israeli state and anti-Semitism. So they consider any harsh critic against the Israeli state, against their illegal occupation and expansionism, uh, you know, in the Palestinian territories, they consider all these critics as anti-Semitism. You know, we have to stop this. All these, uh, you know, uh, anti-Israeli critics should not be coined as anti-Semitism. These two are two main different concepts. Here in Turkey, most people, they are anti-Zionist, but not anti-Semitism. Please, let's be clear on this one. So, uh, you know, here among the academics, uh, we do not take this uh, seriously, really. You know, and, and uh, it's quite, it was a quite shallow explanation made by the, uh, by the State Department, by the way, you know, uh, accusing Erdogan for anti-Semitism.
yeah, they can, you can make some critics. You can criticize for sure President Erdogan, but not in this issue. Uh, and, and Turkey has been ready, uh, for instance, to normalize its diplomatic relations with Israel. Just because of the conjecture, the, it is the Israeli state, uh, side and the Netanyahu government who so far insistently rejected uh, the Turkish demand and has been trying to uh, isolate Turkey in the Middle East. This is the story uh, on this issue. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, gentlemen. And uh, we are looking forward to meeting on Monday. And I will propose uh, you to get together again after the meeting, see if uh, have another Zoom meeting uh, about the outcomes of this meeting. Uh, thank you very much, Luke. Thank you very much, Professor Ataman. And thanks for the audience for following us and hope to see you in the next SETA DC panel. Have a good afternoon. Have a nice day. You too. Have a Bye -bye. good afternoon to you all. Thank you very much.